0: Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket.
3: Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And everyone was kung fu fighting in Congress today. We have such a great show for you. White House senior advisor Mitch Landrew details how the Biden administration is rebuilding America's infrastructure. Then we'll talk to Bolts Magazine editor Daniel Nakanian about all of the off off-year elections that you might have missed. Spoiler, Democrats swept the judiciary in Pennsylvania. But first, we have Showtime's The Circus, John Heilman. Welcome back to Fast
4: Politics, John. Fast. Faster. <laughs> fastest. However the politics comes, uh, whatever velocity it comes at us here, um, I'm ready to go. I've had a guy who had one decent night's sleep since 1987 and I'm... I'm, I'm ready for what this podcast holds in store. Let's go. That's
3: right. Well, as long as you slept in the in the 80s.
4: I've got my seatbelt on and my uh, <laughs> leather chaps on below the... <laughs>
3: All right, give me the TLDR. What is happening with John, with politics, with the world? What are you watching? What are you thinking about? What's on your mind?
4: I love a, an interviewer who begins with I have no real question here. Uh, the floor is yours. Back in the day when I used to do uh, uh, hardball with Chris Matthews, my favorite question of Chris's was always like he would start talking about a topic like abortion and politics or the midterms, whatever it was. And he would hold forth for, you know, Three minutes, four minutes, you know, like a a full full scale Joe Scarborough rant for some period of time. And then he would say, John Heilman, your thoughts.
3: That's I, what I want, man. And Your I was thoughts. always like,
4: uh, I don't know. You said everything, Chris. Uh, I don't know if I had any thoughts at this point. I feel like I've been beaten with sticks. I'm in New York City. We just finished the final six episode run, eighth season of Showtime's The Circus, which is, is now part of the history book. At least the incarnation of the show that has lived on Showtime for eight years and 130 episodes is now finished. What happens next is anyone's guess. We'll see about that. The show may have some new life and on some other platform as we go forward. We're trying to figure that out as we speak. That's one of the things that's on my mind right now that I'm working on. I am uh, amazed by, <laughs> you guys talked about this on TV this morning a little bit, but it's kind of an awesome world we live in, where it's like the Republican, former president of the United States, Republican front runner can directly crib from, people say echo. It's not an echo. It's a crib from Mein Kampf you know, you're like writing down the Fuhrer's language and you're speaking it. And then when someone says, Hey, I think I've heard that vermin thing before, that's Adolf Hitler, right? And someone on the, on the former president's staff says, Anyone who says that Donald Trump sounds like the Fuhrer will be consigned to hell and will never have a life. It will all be over for that person. <laughs> Go to Gitmo. They will be put in Gitmo under the auspices of Stephen Miller, Cash Patel, and t- Tiffany Trump forever. <laughs>
3: I can't believe you brought Tiffany into this. Well, whatever, you know,
4: I mean, uh, I, I don't no. like to say the other fe- female Trump's name. Right. So, you that's know, it's like, and they say literally, it's like if you're, if somebody just says, hey, um, that's like what Hitler said. You off with his head. You know, I find it just kind of incredible.
3: Wait, let's talk about this for a second, though. Do you and I end up at Gitmo? Yes. Oh, yeah. hundred percent. A
4: hundred percent. A hundred percent. Molly, well, I won't end up at Gitmo because I'll be living in Portugal by then. <laughs>
3: Yes, it'll just be me and get out.
4: I'm in the phase of Porto versus Lisbon at this point. Like, I'm making those contingency plans because there's no doubt. You know, it used to be like if you were on Nixon's enemies list, there was a chance they would audit you. And like I feel like an, an audit in the if Trump gets reelected, you and I will be facing a lot worse than audits, let's put it that way. It's, it's a cliché now people say, you know, uh you know the, the whatever her name was used to say, take Trump seriously but not literally. And you just like again, false binary. Like take him seriously and take him literally. Because the, the people who are going to vote for him take him literally. And and I think there's like a pattern recognition thing here. It's like if you see enough stories where they talk talk about targeting their enemies in very direct ways, you start to be like, yeah, it seems like he's got that on his mind. It seems like that's what he wants to do, right? So yeah. I don't know. I'm not i am not going to take any chances with it.
3: Yeah, I think that's probably a very depressing but good
4: point. I will say, by the way, just in terms of like campaign strategy, I was just talking to my friend Mark McKinnon, who you were on Morning Joe with this morning, and I'm like, you know, Mark, when you worked on the Bush campaign, you were able to destroy John Kerry's candidacy by quoting him saying, I voted for it before I voted against it. And, and now it's <laughs> like, I want I wonder if the Biden team can do something with that Hitler reference. You know, it's like
3: (laughs) (laughs) how far we've come, how far we've come. By the way, you saw that Trump is now running. I mean, this is speaking of like campaign fuckery. Trump is now running an ad on overturning Roe for the Iowa caucuses, despite the fact that this is electoral poison.
4: Yeah, there's a lot of things to say about that. One of them is that he doesn't seem in the same place that he sort of doesn't seem to know who he's running against. I said to, we had this in that conversation that Tim Miller and I had had with Bannon the other day for the circus.
3: It's amazing. Everyone has to watch that. It's incredible. You really, I don't know how you're able to keep your cool while losing your shit at the same time.
4: It's one of the great challenges of my life. There was a moment where Steve was saying, you know, if you listen to Trump's speeches, there's a lot of policy in there. I'm (laughs) like, Steve... Steve, have you ever visited a memory care unit, you know, for people who have advanced <laughs> Alzheimer's or dementia? That's what listening to a Trump speech is like. He doesn't know where he is half the time. So I don't think he knows some in some level they really are still his campaign is interestingly, weirdly, they have proven to be very good at certain things. And you can't understand the threat if you don't acknowledge that, you know, we all said in 2020, we're like, he's not going to get who voted for Trump in 2016. Who's the person who did who voted against Trump in 2016 that they're going to turn and going to get to vote for him in 2020. And they would say to us, they would say, well, we're not doing that. What we're doing is we're finding millions of people who didn't vote at all in 2016. And we're going to turn those people out and he will get more votes. And we all thought, bullshit. And then they did exactly that. They did pretty well. They got millions more votes than they got. And no one, I mean, I would say most smart strategist analysts, strategists, journalists were like very dubious about their ability to locate all these hidden Trump right. voters. And they did. They found them. And and so you can't just say they're incompetent. There is this other thing, though, where they seem to think you can put an ad on in Iowa for the primary and that no one will remember that ad <laughs> or use it against <laughs> him in a general election <laughs> where indeed, you know, the position of Ira repealed Roe v. Wade. I'm proud. Hey, Roe v. Wade, law of the land before me, after me, gone, gonzo. Like as if that's not going to be a thing they will use against him. And, And obviously, you know, it is electoral poison. I don't think he sort of gets that people are watching right now, you know, and that those ads are like in the, are being loaded up in the cannon to be fired at him over the course of the general election. It's one of many things that should make Trump totally unelectable.
3: Yeah. What are the other things that should make Trump? I mean, besides the the, (laughs) criminal, the ninety-one criminal indictments. But I mean, well, and the citations and the
4: cite the regular citations of Hitler. You know, um, you know those things. (laughs) Those you know the the small things that uh, that should make him uh, unfit for you know any office, let alone the highest office in the land.
3: One of the things that I'm struck by is that it seems to me like Republicans made a Faustian bargain in 2015 with Trump, and they said we're going to touch the fourth rail. We're going to embrace racism we're going to embrace the things we pretended to hate before, or pretended not to embrace, but quietly dog whistled to. And one of those things is anti-choice, right? They always sort of kept moderated enough, right, with Roe, so that there was a cha- you know, who even knew? And I think one of the things that worked for Trump was that he was such a Rorschach, he had no voting record, you could say he was some people could say to themselves, well, he's an evangelical now, and other people could say, well, he's a liberal because he's from New York and used to be a Democrat. Now they have this rightward flank that is so used to being appeased and given things they want, you can't backpedal. I mean, that crew wants a federal abortion ban.
4: Yeah. I mean, look, I think you would add one thing to the list with Trump, which is that, you know, not only was he a New Yorker and not only had he given money to Democrats, not only had he voted as a Democrat in those times, everyone you knew just assumed that he'd paid for at least a couple dozen abortions over the right. course of his life right, right. I mean that, that he was functionally pro-choice even if he hadn't given the matter any serious uh, spiritual or moral uh consideration and whenever I use the word spiritual or moral consideration next to Donald Trump it like feels like I'm talking about like my dog in calculus you know it's like <laughs> right, exactly. you know, I'm like really but I think people just assumed that he, he could project that thing he needed to say these things to get the solid support of evangelicals he needed to say these things in order to get this very important part of the, of the Republican coalition. You know, when they were planning the 2016 campaign and Bannon was feeding him the populist, a nationalist, anti-China, build the wall, all of that nativist, populist, grievance-based stuff that was like the core of what Bannon wanted to run on. And, and what he saw a, a lane for a politician who could take over the Republican Party by appealing to those parts, that increasingly large part of the base that was like that. The big problem was... You know, there's this uh, giant, huge chunk of Christian conservatives who have such a dominant outsized role in in Republican presidential nominating politics. And so it was like, well, what are we going to do about that? And I think, you know, Trump's attitude was, you know, I'll just tell him I'm for for, for repeal. I'll say I'm going to repeal Roe v. Wade and I'll let the Federalist Society pick the judges and that'll appease them. It's worth a shot. And Mm -hmm. I can very vividly remember being with him in Iowa three or four days before the caucus in 16 up in Sioux City, the most conservative part of Iowa, sitting there watching him sit on stage in a beautiful old theater with Franklin Graham, you know, who he had roped in and it was like the ultimate evangelical imprimatur. And you're like, hey, I can't believe this worked. Are these people stupid or what? And I think they, again, one of the times when we smart-ass pundits were like, oh, it turned out they were like, yeah, we don't really believe he's he, he cares about this issue, but we think he will do what he said he would do, which is let the Federalist Society pick the judges. And lo and behold, you know, that's what happened. The thing about the Iowa thing, this is the thing I forgot that I meant to say a second ago, is it is the state where he is the only, I mean, state, Trump is so full of false confidence and exaggerated brio about everything. You know, he's like, I understand the people in New Hampshire. You know, I understand the people in Mississippi. They're just like me. Right. But he really does. He looks around the country and, you know, whether it's the Northeast. Or the southeast, you know, the Florida part of the world, or the Deep South, or the Mountain West, in places like you know the the plant, you know, the places like Nevada or Arizona. He's very confident that he understands those people. And the one place in the country where he never, where you always, and the industrial Midwest, you know, the he, the working class as of uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Ohio, the place where he doesn't really have a feel for it, has never had a fingertip feel for it, or, and he knows it, and you can see it because he doesn't even express the same kind of confidence is that part of the Midwest that's just full of nice people. You know,
5: <laughs> right?
4: Like Iowa, nice, and Donald Trump don't just—he's like, who the fuck are these people? Like, I don't understand them at all. And so, and he and he lost there, as we all remember, yeah. to Ted Cruz, right? Yeah. And I yeah. think it, it makes him crazy that it's this mm-hmm. place where he never has really understood Iowa. Side note: the other major national politician who feels the same way as Hillary Clinton—they're right. like, I just right. don't get this state, you know. And so, when right. he's de- he he's been in Iowa more in this run than any other place. He goes, keeps going back again and again, and he's putting money into it and he's advertising there. And I think that's part of the thing you see with those abortion ads is a desperation. He really wants to win Iowa and be able to say to people, I now understand the, the I understand the people of Iowa, you know, those, uh, those people out there, I understand the What are they called? The Cornhuskers? No, wait, that's Nebraska. Right. It's like, he just really <laughs> needs Iowa to feel like psychically complete, like he has full dominance of America. So he's just willing to do whatever, even if it makes no strategic sense whatsoever.
3: Right. And I think that's right. Because the truth is, there's no one even close to him in the polls.
4: That's right. You know, but, you know, like I said, you know, this is the thing with politicians is that they get a thing in their craw. He is just, he looks at Iowa and thinks, you know, I am not going to let that happen again. I'm not going to let this campaign start with a loss. And, you know, maybe all the numbers you see, like, what's going to happen if any one of these people drop out. He's the, the thing with Trump is in Iowa, he is the second choice of almost everybody who's not with him on the first choice. So it's like if DeSantis drops out, what happens? Most, most of the DeSantis supporters move to Trump. If Haley drops out, same thing. I don't think he's going to lose in Iowa, but he's haunted clearly by the fact that Pat Dracula beat him in, uh, in 2016. Yeah, Ted Cruz. Fat Dracula will always be my favorite thing for him. If, 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 if it's the only place where I mean, Lion Ted was really good, but Fat Dracula is better.
3: Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, I always thought of him as Fat Wolverine, but Fat Dracula is a hundred <laughs> times better yeah. because ultimately, he really is Dracula.
4: He does want to suck your blood. He wants to. He wants yes. to suck. If I could do a Ted Cruz accent, <laughs> I would. I want to suck your blood. That's what it's all about. <laughs>
3: And he leaves the dog alone, which is unforgivable. And so, by the way, you have a lot of experience with this. Notice how I'm not saying you're old because you're not.
4: Oh, oh, I'm old, Molly. I'm old. <laughs> I'm ancient. <laughs> but, Barely ambulatory at this point. Do,
3: in the House, we have this very religious guy with a lot, as the Speaker of the House now, Mike Johnson. He is hurtling towards the shutdown right before Thanksgiving. I mean, do you think this will reflect, or you think all of this will be in the rear view by twenty-four? And no one will care.
4: I think it will reflect the whole debacle by which we got this speaker, I think, is a thing that will leave and and what it's obviously going to lead to, which is an enormous amount of incompetence and miscalculation, and stupidity over the course of the next nine months. I think it is it will definitely leave a mark on. The House of Republicans and their ability to have any chance whatsoever of keeping control, even you know the, by the slimmest margins, of the House of Representatives. And I think you know the, that there are, there is a the picture of Republican extremism and dysfunction combined together. You know, it's like uh, you know, fat dumb fat dumb and stupid is no way to go through college, son. It's like right. you know, it's like it's like extreme dysfunctional and and lunatic is not a great. Profile for a, a candidate in a swing in a swing district, you know, in yeah. America. I think all of that will will adhere. And I think if they shut the government down, you know, this speaker clearly wants to shut the government down. Yeah. Like that's the the funny thing about this is that it's like, will Mike Johnson come up with a clever plan to keep the government open? It's like deep in his heart, the guy's like, shut this shit down. And I think will that that will hurt. Republicans. I think Republicans are doomed in the house anyway, but I think it will further doom them. Um do I think it will play in the presidential thing? I don't really because I I don't, I think Trump is sui generis, you know. You can try to make some attenuated argument about, you know, Bannon and Gates and them being Trumpy and like, you know, they are obviously, but I don't think anybody who is seriously contemplating a vote between Joe Biden and and Donald Trump is going to be like, hey, the reason to vote against Trump is because of, you know, I'm on the fence here about these two, (laughs) but like Mike Johnson is what I'm going to, is going to be the killer, the dagger to Trump's heart. I just don't see that as being like the decisive vote, the decisive factor.
3: <laughs> but it does it certainly does paint an incredible picture of Republicans unable to govern.
4: Yes, and I think you know we reached that point with the speaker fiasco where it broke through in the way that things that matter break through, which is like when the thing breaks through to the point that it's the subject of late night comedy or right. YouTube memes or, or, you know, social media memes or whatever the, you know, take your pick of the the various, four, the various platforms in which people who are ostensibly serious start to become the butt of widespread jokes. That's an issue, a political issue that's starting to cut, you know, where you can do an SNL cold open with a bunch of people in it who no one knows. Like SNL is always like, hey, we do cold opens. We do them a lot about presidents, vice presidents, you know, presidential two nominees of a party. Nobody's at, like at the level of Lauren Bobert, you know, has ever been right. on a, an SNL cold open before, right? <laughs> right? But now we're at the place where the Republicans collectively are such a laughing stock that Saturday Night Live is like, yeah, you know what? We can put up a bunch of Republican backbenchers here on mm-hmm. in the cold open and people will get <laughs> why this is funny. That's not a great place to be in for a national political party.
3: <laughs> John,
4: I hope you'll come back. Oh, I'll come back. When have I ever said no? I Sometimes You're I say later. Sometimes I say not this week. But I never say no to, to, to the great Molly Jong Fast. Oh, partly because I know that if I ever really said no, you would turn on me and say, I am your retribution or I am my retribution. And then I just get fast, faster, or fastest retribution. Who wants that?
6: Listen to The Daily Show Ears edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Mitch Landrew is a White House senior advisor and the former mayor of New Orleans. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Mitch Landrew. Where are you at, baby? Where? <laughs>
7: People are not going to understand that. Even better. If you're from New Orleans, where you at? I'm doing great. Thank you for asking.
3: <laughs> it's a year since you became senior advisor and infrastructure coordinator at the White House.
7: No, ma'am. I don't want to start off on the wrong foot, but it's been two years.
3: <laughs> two years. It's two years.
7: I don't understand why you're trying to short me. I'm two years. <laughs> Uh, So explain to us what that looks like. Oh, it's just, it's been so unbelievable. You know, when I was had the joy of being the mayor of New Orleans during maybe the most difficult time in the history of the country, we had to rebuild the city and it was really hard, but we did it. And it was a soulful, wonderful experience that I learned a lot of lessons from. So when the president called me and said, hey, would you come up here and help rebuild the country? I was like, I'm all in. But, you know, you're kind of starting off from scratch because the country hasn't done this in a long, long time. And I mean like Franklin Delano Roosevelt long or Eisenhower long or rural electrification long. So it's a daunting task. And most people, A, didn't think it was gonna happen and B, thought that if the bill passed that we couldn't get anything done. So here we are two years later, we're bringing receipts, chapter, verse, date, time, place. We have 40,000 projects that are under uh, some level of formation right now in all 50 states in 4,500 communities and the territories and D.C., and so when the president said, hey, look, I have an idea, I have a vision for how you make America strong, both at home and abroad, the way you do that is invest in the American people and you invest in real things that people need every day to make their lives better. That's what the idea was. And so as a consequence, we pass this piece of legislation, which along, by the way, with the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, the American Rescue Plan are creating, I don't know, we're up, we're up to past 14 million jobs now, 800,000 manufacturing jobs, another 600,000 construction jobs, people back to work, making good money. And we're rebuilding communities, roads, bridges, airports, ports, waterways, high speed internet, clean air, safe water.
3: So I know what you guys have been up to because I listen to C-SPAN, but for the people who don't listen to C-SPAN, last week was a big week for trains. Let's talk about trains.
7: Well, if you live on the Northeast Corridor, uh, this is something that you know very, very well. And by the way, the only way that I can start off talking about trains is to say that the President of the United States is a train guy. People know, should know his story fairly well, though. When he was 29, he was elected to the United States Senate. There was a incredible tragedy in his family. His wife was killed in a car accident. He traveled back and forth on Amtrak home at night to take care of his two younger sons. And he essentially did that pretty much every day he was in the Senate until he became vice president. That is a familiar experience traveling on the Northeast Corridor from Washington, D.C. to Boston. And last week, the president announced $16.4 billion, which is just a piece of the investments we're making to try to have world-class rail in the United States of America. So if you live anywhere along the Northeast Corridor, all the way from Boston down to Washington, D.C., the Frederick Douglass Tunnel in Baltimore, the Susquehanna Bridge, there are 13 bridges in that area that are over 100 years old that are gonna get replaced. Um, Everybody knows what the choke points are in New York, around the Hudson Tunnel and the Gateway Project, $11 billion invested, and finally, fixing that really difficult situation that, by the way, is still suffering from some kind of saltwater intrusion from Sandy. A lot of investments there to make people's lives better. Um, And then, of course, the huge numbers more than that, high speed internet's critically important. I just got off a call uh, with the majority leader about 200 jobs that are being created in Syracuse by a company called PPC that is going to start making fiber optic cable there. And we have examples like that all over the country in every one of the different kinds of investments that are being made. Everybody now knows, by the way, how beautiful it looks to have a great airport. LaGuardia is just throwing it, knocking it out the park. That is what the future looks like for aviation in America. And we're investing in airports all over the country.
3: What does this mean for me when I take my Acela? Will my Acela be faster? Like, how will this affect me?
7: It's an excellent question and how it affects me. That's pretty much what American citizens ask about, well, what's this really mean to me? Not the macro sets, but in the micro sets. Essentially, uh, there are a couple of things going on. You know, Amtrak is a big player in the space along the Northeast core. They have been given a substantial amount of money to do a number of different things. One of them is to buy and have manufactured in the United States new train sets. Those are the cars that everybody rides on with the engine that moves you from place to place. And so those are in the process of being constructed as we speak, I think that we have uh, are going to purchase over a thousand new train cars that have to be manufactured that are going to be much closer to being net zero uh, than the ones that we have right now. The second thing that they are trying to do is along that entire northeast corridor, they're trying to, as best as they can, find out uh, where they can straighten some of the tracks without impeding on people's homes or businesses unnecessarily so that the trains can actually go faster. And then the trains themselves will do that. On top of that, they are going to hopefully retrofit a lot of the stations that people have to use to make them uh, handicap accessible. The other day, for example, I was in Wilmington, Delaware, cutting the ribbon on a new train station station reproduction project where folks used to have to carry their bags up and downstairs and folks that had physical challenges couldn't move. That's all been, you know, fixed. And that's going to happen across the Northeast corridor. So the experience should get safer. It should get faster. It should get better. It should be more climate friendly. On top of that, outside of the Northeast corridor, which I know that you're equally concerned about. yes, equally. If you were in the (laughs) southern part of the United States of America, where I'm from. I
3: went there once. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> That's like not Florida, right? Or you ha-
7: yeah, exactly. Or you happen to be on the West Coast, or you happen to be someplace in between. There are um, opportunities to create a really high-speed rail that, that is going to mirror maybe what you see in Japan or in China. And there are a lot of different proposals across the country that we're considering that way as well
3: could that actually happen i mean is that a real thing that could actually happen
7: it can happen from new york to los angeles it can happen from uh, vegas to los angeles it can happen from san francisco to los angeles it can happen for example maybe one day between georgia and north carolina you know i think you have regional things that look like that it just depends on at the end of the day how much you want to invest to get us from here to there but i don't think there's any doubt See, I'm, fr- I'm from New Orleans. We don't really have high speed rail and we don't, we've got some Amtrak, but not the way that you guys in the Northeast live on this. And it just turns out that I think 800,000 folks travel every day on the Northeast Corridor and you wouldn't even yeah. think about necessarily taking a car are taking a plane. The president's yeah. like, look, we got to make this faster, better, and easier for everybody, which is what the goal is. So for the first time, in the, really, in the last 50, 60 years, the president was able to get this money in place. We're trying to get it down to the ground, which the president announced the other day biggest announcement on on the on the whole thing was for the Hudson tunnel it's 11 billion dollar piece of change to, um, to, to fix the old tunnel and to build a new one uh, and then to fix all the gateway projects that everybody up there has been arguing about forever. so the president finally brought you know New York and New Jersey together the governors were there. the other day the majority leader and uh, Senator Gillibrand were there. all of the secretaries for DOT and everybody's g, as I like to say g Gehan and working together. Um, and this is going to be a real deal thing going forward in your life. hopefully going to be a little bit safer, faster, easier and cheaper. That's a good.
3: So talk to me about the lead pipes, because you guys are are dealing with the drinking water situation, too.
7: Well, the other thing, too, is the president and the vice president are adamant that everybody in america ought to have clean and safe air and water and quite frankly of all the projects in this bill the 375 of them and as i told you they crisscross the country i've actually by the way traveled to 131 cities towns and counties and tribal communities and traveled over 110,000 miles i've talked to a lot of folks about a lot of things i have to say that the clean air and clean water pieces of this are so basic that people just can't believe that in the United States of America we're not there yet, and so there are happen to be some places in America two million people that don't have indoor plumbing. I know that sounds kind of amazing, but that is in fact true. So you know, I've been down to Lowndes County in Alabama and working on projects like that. I've been as far north as in the Pakeyuk, uh Alaska, which is like way the hell up there. All right, <laughs> um, the tribal community—that's <laughs> the best way I can Wait, describe it.
3: How do you even get there, by the way? By boat.
7: Oh, wow. No, it's insane. I mean, you fly and then when you get in Anchorage, you're like, okay, well, I got to get up there. And they're like, well, let's put you in a little bitty plane. And then the plane lands on a dirt runway. And then I'm like, are we there yet? And they're like, no, you got to get in a boat. And I'm like, oh man.
3: (laughs) And it's cold when you get up
7: there, right? Well, it wasn't, I went, I went when it wasn't cold because I'm smart, but it was wonderful. (laughs) And we met, we met the tribal community up there. And of course, The point here is that nobody is too far away for the president, whether it's in the Black Belt or whether it's down in the Delta or whether it's in a tribal community in northern Alaska, which, by the way, you can actually see Russia from, that's true, actually.
3: I feel like you're stealing somebody else's shtick here.
7: I'm just saying, when I was there, I felt bad because I thought that was a joke, but it actually turns out to be close. (laughs) So, in any event, the ability to get clean air and clean water to people is critically important. Now, we know about this a lot in the country because of what happened in Flint, Michigan, which by the way, they're all new piping in Flint, Michigan. That project is complete. Thank God it took way too long. But um, the president, and the vice president, we're able to put in this bill, $15 billion to help eradicate all the lead pipes in America. and I, And we're well on the way working with cities and states to get this done. We have 1,200 drinking and wastewater projects uh, including funding to replace hundreds of thousands of lead service lines. So we're on track. But again, this is a hard thing. And, and by the way, it's done by cities and counties. The federal government's not doing this work. This money gets pushed down to the states. It gets pushed down to the mayors and they have to do the work. And they're in the process of, of doing it as we speak.
3: So interesting. Yeah, it's crazy. It's a lot of work. Let's go to broadband.
7: When you live through COVID, if you didn't understand it before, you understand it now. And nothing happened if you don't have access to knowledge. And the access to knowledge is through internet. And the president made a commitment to make sure that everybody in America, stressing everybody, is going to have access to it. And so there are two things going on here. One of them is making sure that we lay fiber optic cable everywhere in America where it is not, or uh, some other kind of technology that is absolutely necessary, for example, at a faraway place like the if you can't get fiber there. And the second is connecting people who actually have access to high-speed internet but can't afford it. So just in the past two years, through what they call the Affordable Connectivity Program, which you can find at getinternet.gov, if you're living at or below 200% of the poverty level, you essentially can get free internet for 100 megabytes per second and we've signed up 21 million Americans for this project. It's called Internet for All, and we're gonna keep doing that, and we're gonna keep laying fiber up to cable. Now, every governor in the state has already received what they know is their allocation, the federal money they're gonna get to actually start putting fiber in the ground, and you can see that on our website, invest.gov, as well. Uh, And by the way, every project in America is on that website. If you want to find out what a project is, go on. There's a map. It's got a bunch of dots on it. It looks like a Surat painting. You can just push the dot and the project will come up and you can tell how much it is, where it is. And we did that for transparency for the taxpayers of America. You know, the governors are in the process of submitting their plans to us about where they're going to lay it. We're going to say, yes, they're going to get to work. But there's already been billions of dollars that have been sent to the states through the Department of Agriculture and the Department of Treasury to start a lot of this work. And as I said, just today, like 10 minutes ago, I just got off of a press call with Senator Schumer about a company in Syracuse that's going to manufacture the stuff that you need to put to build fiber so you can put it in the ground. It's going to create uh, 500 plus jobs, which was one of the points of all of this stuff anyway, not just to give people better roads and bridges and airports and ports, which are all critical, but to build them in a way that created lots of high paying jobs so people could build generational wealth have some dignity in their life. And by the way, use products that are made in America so we can rebuild communities that have gotten burnt out from offshore. That was President Biden's vision. And the truth of the matter is he's bringing receipts. There've been lots of people that have been in public office, some of whom that sat in the White House that said they did things that they didn't do, took credit for stuff that they didn't. This president can bring you receipts uh, in chapter and verse. And instead of just talking about an infrastructure week, we're actually in the midst of a massive rebuilding that's gonna be an infrastructure decade.
3: Tell me what project are you the sort of most excited about? Or what is a project that we don't know about that we should know about?
7: Well, first of all, I wouldn't be doing my job if you didn't know about it. But the big cathedral projects, the Brent Spence Bridge is a massive bridge that connects Ohio and Kentucky to red states, by the way, that carries about 3% of the nation's gross domestic product on any given day, moving goods from ships to shelves. That project is a really big project that is pretty symbolic of what the whole thing is we're doing. I don't need to Tell you about the symbolism of a bridge, but it actually connects people. And then it spiritually connects people as well. We've put a billion dollars into the restoration of the Great Lakes. So if you live anywhere in or around that, you understand the significance of that. A billion dollars into the Everglades. The biggest project really is one in New York in the Hudson Tunnel. That's the big one. That's the one that is going to touch more people than any singular project in the country. We're rebuilding the Frederick Douglass Bridge. So if you're coming from New York into Washington, D.C. and you know you're kind of heading towards Baltimore, that train slows down to 30 miles an hour.
3: Yes, I have some experience with
7: that. Well, here you go. Here's how it's going to improve your life. You're going to have to do your homework faster because that train is going to go 110 miles an hour, not 30, around that term. Running into that, but then and let me just say this: that those are big, big, big projects. There are some small projects that are exciting, like making sure that we get indoor plumbing to folks in Lowndes County, uh, Alabama, or you you meet somebody like Deanna Branch and her two kids, Aiden and Jada, in Milwaukee that make sure they got to have clean water, and you see their faces. Or the guy named Walter, who was a tribal leader up in the Pacquiao, who we met, or a guy named Slim, if you can believe this, who is the mayor of a small town in New Mexico called Hatch, which by the way, has the best chili in the world, who really is concerned Mm -hmm. because it's flooding too much. To me, those are the things, because that President Biden said, look, we gotta see everybody. This is really easy, you guys. If we can do things together, we can do big things. If we can't do big things together, we can't do anything. And oh, by the way, don't leave anybody behind. So Mitch, get your butt out there and go find these people and talk to them and make sure that they're involved in the work that we're doing. And for me, That's been the most uplifting part of this entire process.
3: What do things look like now from this point on? Is it just watching these things get finished?
7: No, 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 no. You got to, first of all, remember when we started, I said we haven't done something this big in a long, long time. And so from my perspective as a mayor, which is a more of a not what you want to do, but how to do stuff job, kind of where the pedal hits the metal or the rubber hits the road, you got to get stuff done. You have to set up what I call a mousetrap or scaffolding, you got to make sure the federal government and all the cabinet secretaries are working together. You got to make sure they're working every day with the governors. The governor's cabinets have to be working together. You've got to be working with the mayors. You got to be working with the community leaders. That takes a lot of work. If you ever raise a lot of kids, you kind of understand what I'm saying here, where you got to get everybody dressed at the same time because we're all going to school because I got five kids and I had four of them in different schools and you got to know what you're doing or you lose a kid like in the burger parking lot. That's not a good thing.
3: Yes, I have some experience
7: with this. <laughs> so, so in other words, if you can think about how to herd cats, you have to do that every day, all day to make sure one of the kids doesn't run in the street. All right. So you can put some technical language around all of that. But it's about what I call horizontal and vertical integration across federal, state and local authorities, both horizontally and vertically. And that is the team of people that have to get stuff done. And if they're not communicating, collaborating, coordinating every day then you're not, nothing's happened. So that's important. We do that every day. It's like running drills, running stadium steps. We work on that. The second part is, okay, well, if that team's ready to go, they they can't do anything if they don't have the money. So you got to get the money out the door. And in order to do this in a transparent way, where we do these projects on time, on task, on budget, with no waste, fraud, and abuse, you gotta make sure that the applications are good, that they're smart, that if you give these folks money, they'll actually be able to make it happen, then you gotta get the money to them. And the money gets to them in two ways. Some of the money goes straight to the governors, and then some of the money you have to apply for that goes to the mayors and the county executives. So you gotta run that whole process. And then the third thing you gotta do is what you and I are doing today, which is telling people about it, so they know it's coming, they can kinda check on how we're doing, Pick us in the butt when we're not doing it the right way, demand that we go faster. And then when it looks good, say, oh my God, I love that. Can we have more of it? And so that's it. And so that requires nurturing every day. I do think that we are organizationally in a much better place. The country is going to learning now how to build big things again. We have to prove it to people because nobody Man. believed that we could do it. And I'm just really hopeful that as we go forward in the country, remember, we only end this two years, it takes a long time to build a strong foundation that can't ever be reversed. And so we're in the early stages of that and a lot more work to do. And we're at the point where, as my grandma would say, she would say, it needs a lot of elbow grease. You got to work it. I call it the hard work of governing well and demanding that people get off of their high horse and quit arguing about extremes and get focused on the thing that we all care about, which is a road filling the damn pothole, getting home as fast as we can so we can do homework with our kids and do the things that people need to do in a way that makes our lives easier. And that's what the president's wanted to do from the beginning. Mitch Landrew, thank you. Thank you. Molly, thank you for everything. I appreciate it. You take care. You too. Daniel
3: Nikanian is editor-in-chief and founder of Bolts Magazine. Welcome to Fast Politics, Daniel.
5: Thank you so much.
3: You are here because you are the editor of this very good magazine called Bolts. It does local elections, but on a micro level. Is that fair?
5: Yeah, I think the, the goal is to connect these local in the weeds elections with all the issues that readers, voters would care about and would look at. Washington for usually, but in fact, it's also happening, you know, at the county level, at the municipal level.
3: Yeah. And this is something I'm very interested in, be- and we should all be interested in what's happening on the local level, because ultimately it has enormous national implications, as we've seen again and again. So I want to talk to you first. We're going to talk about an election that no one has heard about, except you and people who live in Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Judiciary Elections, because there were three judges elected in Pennsylvania. Tell us the backstory. Explain to us the situation.
5: Right. So Pennsylvania was was the only state last week that was holding elections for its, for its court system, you know, in a lot of the country. Judges are elected, not everywhere, but in in most places. Obviously, Pennsylvania really is the swing state, I think I I would say, for 2024 to watch. You know, it really is so important for deciding the presidential race.
3: You really think that? I feel like Pennsylvania is sort of like largely blue at this point.
5: I mean, I think it is such a huge part of the blue wall that if Democrats Democrats kind of secure Pennsylvania, they don't need that much more. All of the other states, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, Wisconsin, they, they only at that point really need one, perhaps, which, which is a, a big, big sell. But Pennsylvania really is essential. And I think, Molly, very importantly, it is the state in 2020 that Trump kept trying to go after in the court system. You know, he kept filing all these lawsuits in Pennsylvania. He obviously did it everywhere. But Pennsylvania was arguably the, the state that saw the most lawsuits. And a lot of these lawsuits went to die in the state Supreme Court in November, December, 2020, and what one of the seats was was empty and this was vacant because a Democrat had passed away last year, and that's the seat that voters in Pennsylvania were going to fill. So, Democrats were sure to keep the majority on the court no matter the result, it was gonna be 5-2 or 4-3, but there, there have been instances on this court that things don't exactly go according to party line, and especially when it comes to mail voting. There have been so many cases in recent years in Pennsylvania around whether mail ballots should be tossed, should be counted. We're talking about an advocate in Pennsylvania told me tens of thousands of bad ballots could be affected in 2024, depending on, on the result of this election. So all of this has made it very important for just voting rights. I'm not even gonna go into all the other issues that, that are important. And Democrats w- won that that seat.
3: They won all three, right?
5: There were actually four judge on the on the ballot. So there was one for Supreme Court and then there were three for intermediate courts that are r- right below the Supreme Court. Democrats swept all four and they actually flipped what's called the Superior Court of Pennsylvania, which is r- right below the Supreme Court. A lot of cases that end up in the Supreme Court go through it. So obviously, it's very important that, that cases be, be prepped for a side or on the other on lower courts. And what's really interesting is that it's not at all usual for Democrats to sweep these down ballot elections on an off year. In 2021, yeah. Republicans did very well in judge elections in Pennsylvania. Those are not those are not years where Democrats usually are eager to go vote. So so this was mm-hmm, a very mm-hmm. meaningful yes. election result.
3: Do you think that speaks to a democratic electorate that is enthusiastic about voting?
5: I mean to look at Pennsylvania specifically, I think you s- definitely cuz you you saw that same pattern county per county. You you saw Democrats do very well in Pennsylvania. So they really kept control of the suburban areas of Pennsylvania. They even flipped new Republican areas blue. And in place after place, there was heavier enthusiasm and turnout in blue areas than there was elsewhere. So for instance, in in Philly, the electorate was a third higher than 2021, whereas in in the state at large, only 10% higher. Now, that's not going to exactly hold into 2024, but indications definitely are that Dobbs, Trump's comeback and a bunch of factors have really energized the, the base of Democratic Party.
3: The reason why I'm thinking about this is because and now we're going to go to Kentucky in this Kentucky gubernatorial. So there were two off year gubernatorials. And in Mississippi, obviously, that was a little bit different circumstances. It's a very red state. There was sort of a hope that Brandon Presley could break through what is a very, you know, whatever, an R plus I don't know, very high numbers, 20, 30, 40, but he wasn't able to. But in Kentucky, one of the things we saw, Brasher grew his electoral margins. He won by even more and he ran on abortion unapologetically. But the point I wanted to make was that Republicans had a real turnout problem
5: in Kentucky. Can you talk about that? We saw the same pattern in Kentucky as we saw in, in other states I was discussing. Republican parts of the state just didn't turn out as much as they should have for the Republican to have, to have a strong chance. You know, one, one a little addendum to this as well in Kentucky is that the, the governor of Kentucky who was a Democrat when he came into office in 2019. He did a couple of things. One, he signed an executive order that restored the voting rights of about 5% of residents of the state just got their voting rights back just like that with one one stroke of the pen of the governor and there was a lot of efforts by organizers this year by 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 people who used to be in prison and, and have regained their rights to reach out to people inform people and get them to turn out as well um, and the other other is that there, there was a, an alliance between the governor Bashir and the Republican and, and some Republicans to make it easier to vote by mail, to make right. it easier to vote in some ways. And, you know, there were efforts done by Democrats with some alliance with, with, with centrist Republicans to make it easier to vote. So it's a little too early to tell, you know, what produced what effect last week. But those things aren't random. There were definitely efforts by Democrats, even in a state like Kentucky, which is very difficult for them, to make voting voting easier last week.
3: Yeah, and that's a really interesting situation because you really do have a red state with a governor who grew his margins and also ran on choice. Let's look at Virginia because Virginia is so interesting to me. My opinion was I was very worried about Virginia because I had seen, you know, Virginia is a purple state. It's maybe getting a little bit more blue, but I really thought Youngkin, he puts on that vest he says some stuff that sounds like a moderate. Remember that 15 week ban had been very well tested, right? Like this guy sticks to his talking points. He's not like Trump. He goes out there. He says, "I'm," you know, give me the legislature and I will enact this very well polled 15 week abortion ban, which was really made in a lab to appeal to moderates. And he couldn't do it. If anything, he lost the other chamber. Talk to me about that.
5: No, I mean, you're absolutely right that Governor Youngkin put a huge effort into recruiting into this new vision of the Republican Party that he thought he was building on the backs of like very conservative policies. Like he went out and said that he will introduce new restrictions on abortions and was hoping that that message would make him seem like a centrist, which is a, a bit odd and, and didn't work at the polls um, because it was it was so odd. He, he was going out and saying actively, I'm going to make abortion an issue. If, if you give me power, I'm going to introduce new restrictions. But that's a compromised position. So obviously there was something here that didn't quite add up. But you're right, Ted, it was, it was very suspenseful.
3: Right, exactly. At least, like, he's a little bit disciplined, whereas Republicans usually have, like,
5: Trump, who's... No, they definitely. But I think one, one thing that's important to remember is that his own election in 2021, the the story behind it then was that there was a lot of anger around schools and, right, and parental right, choice right. in 2021.
3: Really peak COVID education fuckery.
5: There was this idea by Youngkin that the culture wars are going to help him, which actually we saw not, not just so Republicans failed to flip the state Senate, they actually lost the state house in Virginia, but we also saw similar results if you go further down, where school board elections did not go well for con- conservatives last week in Virginia. They they were trying to overtake a bunch of suburban sc- school boards, really increase the presence of monks for liberty, b- book bans, and all these issues that... Were supposed to have been central in 2021, and that also failed. You know, so I think if you combine the abortion result and the school board result, again, what if we see the same thing as we saw in in, in Pennsylvania, where the le- left side of the spectrum was there and did not want the book bans, did not want ab- 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 abortion restrictions, and showed that it itself is not going to sleep through these issues.
3: Talk to me about Moms for Liberty, because this is a fascinating little bit of fuckery. Republicans got very excited that COVID restrictions were going to lead to school choice, which was going to lead to book bans, which was going to lead to them taking over the world. Moms for Liberty, you know, they sort of got the most crazy people they could find. It didn't work for them, did it?
5: This is so important to to, to follow because M- M- Moms for Liberty has this sort of smart, under-the-radar strategy for their purposes of going in at the last minute and endorsing candidates in the final weeks of an election. And it's very hard. There are so many elections for school board, Molly. We're talking about hundreds in the state.
3: It seems like a nightmare, yeah, to keep track of.
5: On a given day, there were hundreds in many states at once. It's very hard to keep track of, including for, for local media, because the candidates are very good at not necessarily saying what they think until there's like, last endorsement at the last minute.
3: It's very misleading, right? The idea is, I look normal, but then at the last minute, they're like, yes, I'm crazy.
5: And what we saw this year, unlike prior years, is there was much more effort on the other side against Moms for Liberty to put the spotlight on people before even they had a the chance to to do their play, and what we saw in the result, obviously you know, there's so many elections that, of course, conservatives won some school boards. They won some seats that are important, but overall, in so many states, the the slates for candidate for uh, conservative school board candidates did very poorly. And I think wherever you are listening to this, you you can go online and search for your own state. And you know, I, I was just yesterday reading articles on Kansas on uh, Iowa. So not you know we we're not we, we're not talking about loose states here. We're talking about yeah. states where the cultural wars are supposed to be very important and overall conservative states did very poorly. I think the the epicenter of this was um in suburban Philly, there were school boards that had already been overtaken by by, by the right in recent years and that were reading the headlines for policies on book bans, policies on transgender students, especially in Bucks County, which is a very large Suburban county in Philly, these, these two school boards flipped back away from conservatives. So, you know, those are very important elections. We're talking about so many students who are going to be affected.
3: I want you to talk for a minute about trans panic, because this is an amazing thing that Republicans ran on. They basically decided that parents would. And again, this was based on some polling, which is why I think we should all remember that polls are not necessarily the best indicator, that parents really got upset if their kid was doing sports against a kid which they where they felt their gender was giving them an advantage and that they thought they could win elections on that. And, and they did not.
5: Yeah. You know, I, I was always kind of skeptical of that narrative because sort of the first big national moment where these issues, you know, captured the national imagination was a law in, in North Carolina about 7-8 years ago now that was the the bathroom bill yeah got a lot of attention the 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 governor lost the following year not to say that that is why he lost exclusively but he really became the embodiment of that issue there was a lot of business backlash at the time a lot of businesses left the state and that was definitely a big issue and in a big in a good year in 2016 that Republican governor Lost the election, and I think we we saw the same. It's so easy to. I think when the media expects that something is true, like when when you expect that there will be a backlash against tra- tra- trans rights, or, or when there will be a backlash against sort of the, of the criminal justice reforms, any example of that backlash then becomes
3: confirmation bias.
5: Yes, it becomes a. Right, it becomes gospel, and then it becomes used in every every story as oh, you know that that famous election. And I think that's sort of what, what we saw in 2021 around those issues, when in fact, what we're seeing, I think in 2023, which is reassuring on the issue of trans rights, that it's not just that people are at best indifferent towards the rights of trans people, but they're, again, they were definitely organizing in, in the school board elections. P- people who came together, formed slates of candidates, campaigned in their communities on this issue and what, wanting to, to protect the, the rights of trans trans students.
3: Look, there are a lot of dumb Republican issues, but this one happens to also be deeply cruel and evil. And so that's why I wanted to bring it up. Look, you know, the gas stoves also didn't work, but people aren't necessarily affected by an obsession with gas stoves, the way that children are affected by being targeted by Republican politicians.
5: With the new Speaker of the House, who has a very anti-gay agenda and anti-gay past, You know, at this point, the Republican Party is going to bring back anti game measures of of all sorts that really go beyond the trans rights and trans-Americans.
3: Yeah, that will be a real disaster, which for them, electorally, which will be well deserved. (laughs) So because they've done it to themselves. The Virginia races were quite expensive, really, you know, important. If Democrats were to sort of take a message from those races, what do you think it is?
5: I mean, it it seems like the one message that our guys are getting out of every election for the past 12 months is that abortion is very important to people. You know, I think think there was this, I think there was a, a fear on the part of people who, you know, were very worried about Dobbs that just by virtue of the fact that 2022 was a Midterm with a Democratic president that Republicans would just happen to do well because that's what happens on the midterm, and then there'd be this like story that forever that that Dobbs didn't create a backlash and that and that would be very bad for abortion policy. Instead, what we've seen in every election in the midterms, in the Wisconsin uh, elections in April last week, is that abortion is really on people's mind, and that is true in places that have abortion bans, and that is true in places that. Where the abortion ban is a threat that obviously could come in the future, and that is going to be the messaging that that Democrats are going to continue using. Another messaging lesson is that in Virginia and in Kentucky, Republicans were very again like last year messaging around the issue of crime, and yeah. they were trying to put the the blame on rising crime rates on on Democrats and criminal justice reforms that in in some places aren't even like Kentucky aren't or haven't even been a, a big a big storyline, and that and Democrats are sometimes a bit defensive on it, but sometimes not. And in fact, in Virginia right now, the new speaker of the Virginia House who's going to be incoming is someone who had a criminal record himself in in the past. So it's interesting to see that that that, that issue also isn't playing out the way that Republicans were expecting it to.
3: So interesting. Daniel, I hope you'll come back.
5: (laughs) Of course, whenever. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for having me. And now your moment of fuckery.
3: Jesse Cannon.
6: Molly Fast. I'm going to tell you, I had to like look up if there was a full moon and people were turning into werewolves because the fighting in Congress today was out of hand. Every hour there was something new.
3: So it was a normal Tuesday on Capitol Hill. McCarthy (laughs) shoved, but later denied it. Congressman Burchett. In the hallway, Senator Mullen, who was an MMA fighter, who knew, tried to fight Teamster President Sean O'Brien. Comer called Congressman Moskowitz a liar and a smurf. (laughs) And then MTG said that Daryl Issa lacked male anatomy. Congratulations, Republicans. We were told that Trump isn't, doesn't scale. We were, in fact, wrong. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening.
0: Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far...